You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Nowhere to Run. Thanks for showing up. I know I always say I got a lot to do today, but I got a lot to do today. So let's just jump right in. Just an overview of what's on my notes real quick. I've got we're going to talk about the DVD project I've been mentioning, going to talk about the King James Bible, going to talk about Proverbs 2, going to do a quick study of the first 6 verses of that. Going to talk about a quick edit I made of a sermon about the cup, talk briefly about a recent trip that Connie and I made for disaster relief stuff. Going to talk about polyanity and a new project with that. Going to talk about Seventh-day Adventism. Going to talk about the age of the universe and whether or not animals could die before the fall, which is an interesting thing. Going to briefly mention Alan Watt and talking about the the new type of producer role that I'm thinking about taking on some of these issues. And basically, yeah, let's go ahead and get started with that. I've been trying to figure out different ways to be more effective. I think I've mentioned in the last few episodes that I've had a lot more emails than normal, which is a good thing. I'm excited about it. These emails are generally really crucial, and it's important to get to them, so I don't mind spending more time. But it is a lot of time, which is keeping me from doing a lot of other things, or at least it's making me be a lot more mm, critical as to what projects I want to take on. Like, I think of a lot of projects all the time. I but I, but I'll think, well, that's really not as big of a thing. I mean, it's not really worth me spending this extra time that I have with it. So I'll kind of write it off or just kind of tuck it away and stuff. But so this last week has been a really eye opener with what can be done with taking more of a, a producer role in a lot of these things. And there's some been some real bright spots there, particularly with two guys. One, Ivan. I've mentioned him several times. I um, just thank the world of Ivan, and he's kind of been my right-hand man in a lot of different ways. Got a lot of talent. I can basically, he just takes something and can run with it, and I just trust him totally with everything. And we've been talking a lot about different projects that I have in my mind and seeing what he's into and what he would like to take on. And so we've been talking about a new polyanity debunked. I, I did a podcast series about that a while ago, and it was okay. It's really, I've been pointing people to it the whole time when they ask about it, but I really wanted to do a better version of that. One thing about this idea of outsourcing, turning things into videos, is realizing the, the power of not reinventing the wheel. And there is a great apologetics website, if you haven't ever been there, called Christian Think Tank. Dot com. Glenn Miller is the guy who is behind it, and it's just amazing apologetic stuff. The, James Patrick Holding of Tectonics, who did a lot of the, the stuff on um, the Christ myth, and, and really is the the founder of the debunking zeitgeist stuff. Well, he would he would say that Glenn Miller is, as far as the, the internet goes, but um, a lot of people do reference him anyway. Holding always points up and holds up uh, Glenn Miller as the guy, and he really is a, a great, uh, great resource. Anyway, he's done some amazing stuff with Pollyannity, and um, so been working with Ivan on that. And we are, um, you know, just going to see where it goes. There's lots of projects that we can be working on, but I'm excited about this idea of outsourcing. Another example of that is I just uh, got off the phone with a guy in the UK. 
I asked last episode about anybody that was into or had a heart for Jehovah's Witnesses. And this is really the perfect guy for it. He's the only guy that responded, and he just happens to be the perfect uh, perfect guy for it. So we were talking about this project of really trying to find the best possible material to help Jehovah's Witnesses. And and I'm just really excited about this prospect of of, of working with people that have passion and don't necessarily have to know how to do anything like as far as the technical stuff because that can all be outsourced you know we could start with somebody who maybe can write the article or find the article it doesn't even it doesn't even have to be something that needs to be produced unless there's nothing out there that's been done and in that case it needs to be produced and then you know somebody records the audio another person can turn it into a video it could be just a, a machine thing and i think that i've talked about this before but i think really taking an active role in finding the pieces and putting the pieces together much like a producer would, I think that that can really make it actually happen. Um, and, and in that context, I want to talk about the Alan Watt thing too. Um, I feel like Alan Watt is sort of the one guy that I would really love to see debunked out there. And the reason why I haven't really done, I've done a few things on Alan Watt, but nothing, nothing much, nothing that actually constitutes a, a true debunking of his, of his teachings and not Alan Watts, the philosopher, the, the guy, but Alan Watt, the conspiracy guy. Um, he is deceiving a lot of people. Any Anybody that's out there that is a former Alan Water. And, I mean, not just you're still into, you know, I'm looking for somebody that is, you know, saved, is is totally on fire for the Lord, but also has some knowledge of Alan Watt. You don't have to be an expert of Alan Watt. Um, because really, even if you were a total Alan Watt disciple, this would still take a lot of research into Alan Watt. Um, I've got Alan Watt's uh, books here. I'll be happy to send somebody. I've got Alan cutting through cutting through volumes one, two, and three here. I'd be happy to send to somebody. Um, but let's let's get this together. I'm looking for some candidates here. I, I basically you don't have to know anything about videos, but you do need to be able to do some research and put together an outline with the in the in the context of if you haven't seen my video how to review uh, how to how when and why to refute false teaching from a biblical perspective i think that's really the angle we need to take on this we need to not just be debunking everything that he said that was ever wrong but to be debunking alan watt as it relates to his um obvious anti-biblical stance and, and st- on all the different things that he believes. I know that he validates the zeitgeist version of history and he, he says that Jesus didn't exist and there's all these kinds of things that would be easy, but there's a lot of specific things for Alan Watt that I think could be done there. So I want to I want to send that out. If anybody thinks, oh man, that might be me. Like I said, with the Jehovah's Witness thing, no, you know, one guy answered and it just happened to be the perfect guy. Um, so if you think that that might be you or, or something that you may be interested in, or maybe you can't do the refutation yourself, but you would be interested in putting together the movie, perhaps when the, uh, when the audio is done or whatever, then just let me know. If you want to be a part of the project in some way, just, just email and I'll kind of put it away for when, when it all gets put together. Maybe we can conference about it or something like that. So just throwing that out there. Um, the DVDs thing, just mentioned briefly the Jehovah's Witness thing, I think that's going to go great. Looking forward to 
how that's all going to come together. I'm working a little bit on the Seventh-day Adventist one, which is one I never actually did originally for DVD tracks. So there's, it's all kind of trying to do it from, from scratch. If anybody's out there and they don't know any difference between, let's say, Seventh-day Adventism and, and, um, you know, evangelical Christianity other than, you know, they go to church on Saturday, I would really encourage you to go to the show notes here and to check out some links. Um, particularly this video produced by Mark Martin, who is a Calvary pastor over at, uh, in Phoenix. He also runs the website xadventist.com. But he has produced this video called, what is it called? Seventh-day Adventism, the spirit behind the church. I'd seen parts of that before, but I watched the whole thing the other night and was just like, wow, people really need to see this to see how different it actually is. And it's, you know, the Sabbath thing is a minor issue when we're talking about Seventh-day Adventism. We're talking about some serious, serious doctrinal differences. Um, and I think that you'll agree, especially in regards to some very key issues like uh, salvation. Um, so anyway, that's something I'm going to be working on if somebody's into that. Or the Muslim thing. I'm also going to put that out there. The Muslim track that I did basically had two testimonies from a particular uh, a site. And, and one of them I, I really think was good, but I think you can do a lot better. If anybody is interested at all or knows a lot about, um, you know, again, you don't have to know a lot about Muslims. You just have to have a heart for it and be willing to maybe spend some time over the next few weeks researching what's out there in terms of audio and video that and look for what is the best presentation we can do and give to to Muslims. And it might not be just one presentation. Maybe it'll be eight presentations that we need to edit down, or maybe it's, um, you know, whatever. That's that's what the research is about, trying to figure it out. And part of that is is contacting the the ministries that are reaching out to Muslims and asking them, what have you seen success with here? And what do you recommend in terms of audio and video or whatever? And so, again, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel, but we are trying to have some sense of urgency about all that stuff. Um, where to go from there? The idea of disaster relief. Connie and I went to Appison, Tennessee, over the weekend and stayed there for um, for a few nights. And it was just a really interesting time. Appison, Tennessee massive tornado came through there killed about 72 people it's it was like two months ago literally a disaster area you just couldn't even believe the level of destruction that was there people were really um they never really got a lot of help out there because right after that tuscaloosa got a lot of time on on the um uh tv and then also of course joplin missouri so Appison is really a country town. There's, it's like out in the middle of nowhere, and it's just totally decimated. And it was really great to see how they were, who was coming together to work there, and 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 how it was all, how it was all going. Connie, I got to help one particular man who we were helping destroy his house, um, and it was interesting to see how functionally stuff like that works. We were just there. We were just working hard. You know, we were just doing. What we could, we weren't there to evangelize them. We weren't there to to take anything. We just were there to work. And you could tell the whole time that everybody was like really impressed with that on a really different level. 
they had seen other people there. They had seen other people come there and, and help and stuff like that. But you could tell that there was something that was happening to them just by us helping and not wanting wanting anything in return. And I think that's kind of sums up the whole idea of, as as Christ said, they're going going to know you by your love for one another. And that's how people are going to know you're my disciples. And I think that he didn't give us any other kind of thing like that. You're not going to know you by what clothes you wear or how you wear your hair or, or by your what this and that. He, he, he gave one sort of thing. They're going to know you by your love for one another. So it's interesting to see how that can essentially preach the gospel in and of itself. And I can tell you, Isaiah 58, which we were talking about not too long ago, about how that's part of a cure for depression, of just going out there and, and helping people and, and helping those people that are down and out. It really does do something to you. It's like, wow, that could I could really get used to just helping people. And anyway, so that was uh, uh, amazing. If you haven't seen some of the pictures of that, maybe I'll post a, a YouTube video of what's been going on in Appison and the work there of Calvary Chapel uh, Chattanooga, which is kind of like a mega church there in Chattanooga, Calvary Chapel out there. And um, they were really cool, made a lot of good contacts there. All right, real briefly, I'm going to mention some stuff about the King James Version and just mention that I think I'm going to really start trying to quote exclusively from the King James, both in videos and podcasts and things like that. The reason is is because mentioning other versions, using other versions, causes people to stumble. And I remember what that was like, uh, especially as I was first saved, that I didn't trust anybody that that used anything except for the King James. And there's no reason for me not to do that. I think a good biblical precedent is... Um, Timothy having uh, Paul having him circumcised so that he could evangelize the Jewish people. Jewish people will not hear him unless he was circumcised. At the same time, he left Titus deliberately uncircumcised as sort of an exhibit A for the Jerusalem council, saying, look, we all know Titus is saved. He's not circumcised. The whole thing, obviously. Peter remembered Cornelius, everybody getting saved, and then saying, okay, well, they're saved. We've got to baptize them, I guess. Um, little sidetrack there. So you... If you quote something other than the King James, or, you know, you're going to offend a certain amount of people, especially the kinds of people that I am trying to appeal to. Um, that is sort of a conspiratorial mindset. Hey, look, so am I. Again, I agree with Texas Receptus 100%. I think it's the better manuscript tradition. There's obvious problems, big problems with things like Sinaiticus and Vaticanus and all the Westcott and Hort stuff. Um, that being said, I'm not going to make anybody stumble if I quote the King James Version. Nobody's going to stumble. Somebody that thinks that, you know, the, the, that Westcott and Horde is the best manuscript tradition, they're not going to be stumbled by me using the King James. But me using something else or recommending something else will make other people stumble. So there's just no reason for me not to do that. Okay, moving down the list, check the show notes. I did a about a 17-minute edit of an hour sermon by a guy named Joe, Joe Fosht. Really good presentation of the gospel in there, really good uh, talking about the cup and the transfer of the cups. Been again, as I mentioned in the last show, really trying to understand the gospel. Still working on the gospel tract and the main part of the DVD tract, and really just trying to soak in what I can about learning about the gospel. I've been taking different sort of uh, audio courses about it and stuff like that. But anyway, so I'll I'll post that in the show notes. Check it out. I also posted that exclusively on Facebook. Another thing that I posted exclusively on Facebook, not really intending to 
post things exclusively on Facebook, but that's just kind of how it's gone recently, is a um, refutation of the theory that God is a volcano. This is something that I've heard before and dealt with with the Jordan Maxwell debunked video briefly, but um, decided to go ahead and do a a 30-minute refutation of some specific points that were raised by somebody on my Facebook page. So check that out. I'll put that in the show notes too if you're interested. Also, let's move into the age of the universe and the debates that surround that. So a lot of you that have been around for a while know that I really like a guy named Gerald Schroeder. He has written a a great book called The Science of God, which contrary to a lot of what people are are thinking, they're, they're thinking he's trying to meld evolution and and, uh, and and the Bible, which couldn't be anything further from the truth. The science of God is mostly his brilliant refutations of evolutionary theory, some of the best out there. Um, what we're going to be talking about today is really a, a small portion, really just a chapter in that book, The Science of God, about the age of the universe. And when I describe this, a lot of people get a little twitchy because um, they think it's something other than a young earth creation. They think it's trying to reconcile science in the 15 billion years to the to the 6,000 years of biblical chronology of the time since Adam. A really short thumbnail of what he is proposing is that um, time is relative to gravity. Time is part of the space-time construct. For instance, if you could stand on the sun like you stand on the earth and Let's say somebody was doing that, another person was standing on Mercury. And you had an unbiased observer, let's say, in the middle of of space with somehow he had an unbiased wristwatch on. And you would literally watch this guy on Mercury and watch this guy on the sun standing there, your watch going at a consistent speed, whatever it was, and you would watch the guy on, let's say, I guess it would be Mercury... I can't remember which one would go faster. I guess the guy in Mercury would just age and age and age and age and age and age and die right there in front of your face. And you're looking at your watch being like, oh, that was weird. And if you ask the guy in Mercury, he'd be like, I spent my whole life standing in this one spot, years and years and years past. He would perceive that in a different way. Then the person on the sun would be going slower. And like if he had a, a piece of fruit in his hand, it would they would ripen and decay at a completely different rate as opposed to the person who is the unbiased observer. If that makes any sense. that That's understood. That time is relative to where you are in the universe. If you say that the universe is 15 billion years, you're saying that the universe is 15 billion years from the Earth's perspective. Now, where this gets interesting is the idea that all scientists begrudgingly had to admit about 50, 60 years ago, that there was a beginning to the universe. They much preferred the idea that the universe was consistent. They would mock the idea that the Bible said there was a beginning. They would say, that's good fairy tales, it's nice for you guys, but we all know that the universe is eternal and it's been here forever. So they really, really, really didn't like the idea that the universe had a beginning because it made them twitchy and made them feel like that the Bible had some sort of, uh, you know, that the first words of the Bible were true, essentially. But... Because of the the Big Bang idea that the universe is expanding and slowing down, you can therefore, because of that, make some simple calculations. If you know how fast or how how well, how much it's slowing down at the rate that it's slowing down, 
and you can actually calculate when it was speeding up and to what degree and, and, and just sort of do some pretty simple calculations there. The issue, though, is, is if right after the Big Bang, it was going much faster than it is now, it's progressively slowing down, that would mean that time itself was also moving faster. That doesn't mean that, that you know, the, the planets or whatever might still be doing one rotation around, you know, or whatever, but progressively, time and the passage of time would be going faster. Gerald Schroeder essentially says two main points to this theory. The first is that the time up until Adam, the Bible itself, this is why he uses the ancient commentators, to show that they are determining from the the words of the Bible and, and some very subtle things in the Hebrew and things, that ancient Hebrew scholars recognize that the Bible recorded time differently from before Adam until after Adam. The reason that's significant is we get the 6,000-year-old earth idea because that was the generations that you can count them up, up until Adam. Uh, but the time before that is recorded differently according to ancient Hebrew commentators in the Bible. So what he's saying is that it's literally six days. Don't, don't miss that here. The previous six days of creation are literal six days, um, but the encompassed in those six days is not evolutionary theory, macroevolution, whatever, all that so idea that there's, there's, there's no, evolution is complete, you know, Every known phylum appeared in the Cambrian era and, and all that stuff. I mean, they just, it follows the pattern of the Bible, which is there was life in the sea before there was anything else, before dry land appeared. I mean, we're going to progressively go down this line and see what happened on the particular days and realize that they happened in that progression in what we know happened on Earth, too. There is no changing phylum. There is no uh, bird turning into this or, you know, any of that stuff. Uh, but, what I'm trying to say is that, you know, I think that you hopefully get the idea. The the issue, though, is it's not a day-era theory. I tried to make that so clear. We're not saying one, day, one biblical day is equal to a certain number of million years. That would be incorrect. What he's trying to do, the reason why he limits himself, the other thing he limits himself to is to peer-reviewed science information for the purpose of saying that the calculations that he made about how the universe slowed down and what progression it slowed down actually, by doing some simple calculations, uh, actually make it, comes out to six days. That, that if that was the case, six literal revolutions of the earth would encompass all the time pre, pre-Adam. Um, so that's why it's so important for him to limit himself to stuff that peer-reviewed scientists say, because peer-reviewed scientists would never want that to be the case. That if you did simple calculations about the expansion of the universe, that it would end up being that six literal days would encompass the 15 billion years of space time. That would just be, that would not be good. So that's why he limits himself to that data. So, all this to say, I, I've looked at this, I've looked for refutations on it, I found some stuff, a lot of it ad, ad hominem, other stuff that um, was just kind of misinterpretations of the theory and stuff like that. Still to this day, I'm pretty confident of the of that theory, and I recommend it to people. It's not a young Earth. It's not an old Earth theory. It's it's sort of, I just think, true. There is one problem, and this was sort of the thorn in my side that that uh, a year or so ago I saw this in a comment in in on the YouTube video that I have up because I made a um, a presentation on YouTube about this. Uh, I took an audio that Gerald Schroeder was saying and turned it into a video. If you want to see it on my YouTube page, it's called Genesis and the Big Bang, Gerald Schroeder, something like that. 
somebody put, well, what about you can't have animal death before the fall? And so in this theory, granted it would be six literal days, but there would have to be animal death before Adam, according to this theory. And this person said, that's the reason they can't believe this theory is because if that was true, then they would say that the fall brought death into the world and therefore death began um, after uh, uh, after Adam, so it's impossible for there to be anything that died before Adam. And there are people out there that uh, that are you know talk about this, and a lot of them don't believe the same way, and they're trying to prove different things and stuff like that. But that's something that I was wrestling with, and I was thinking a lot about it, and you know trying to deal with okay, let's see, the the tree of life was an interesting thing. It was uh, it was eternal life. God wouldn't let them eat that tree after they sinned. Um, but would, were they able to eat from the tree of life before they sinned and all these other things? Were, would they have lived eternally? And I kind of came up with some conclusions about that that I think are pretty biblical. I think that, um, I think the reason they were forbidden to eat from the tree of life after they sinned is because they would live forever in that state. And, and we're told that we're actually going to eat from the tree of life, but not until, even after we're resurrected. The resurrection itself is not, um, even though they may be eternal bodies, we're really not given, again, the tree of life literally until uh, much later after that. So, long story. So I, I looked into that. It looks like we were able to eat from the tree during the garden because the only tree that was forbidden to eat in the garden was the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and, of, and evil. And so that, that kind of was a dead end there. The question is, what happened with the curse? Did cur the and and so this idea that death began with the curse for creation and for man is the question. First of all, the idea that um, you know Satan said, "Oh, you shall not surely die," and a lot of people say, "Well, hey, they didn't die," but really, that's just typical Satan. No, they didn't die right then, but they did die. Um, but would they have lived forever if they hadn't eaten it? Not entirely sure. I think that. What you can make a strong case, and a lot of people do, that the death that's talked about there is the second death referred to after judgment. If you sin, you therefore must face the judgment of God, the great white throne judgment. And the Bible says of that that this is the second death. The old phrase is that those who are born twice, speaking of the born again, you're physical born and then you're born again, those people only die once because they're resurrected uh, to eternal life. But those that are born only once, that only had physical birth, they die twice, because they are also resurrected to go to the great white throne judgment. And only, and you don't want to go to the great white throne judgment, because after that is the second death. So it, it, it's, it's, yes, it's symbolic in one sense that, and really not so symbolic, that they would surely die. Sin leads to death. But it's also physically they did actually die when they may not have died before. So, um, but anyway, that's let, let, let's talk about some of these proof texts about this because it's really important. I think you'll find something really interesting that I found in the book of of Isaiah. So let's quote from Romans chapter five 
And let me get there with my e-sword here. I got it on a website here, but it's not the King James Version. So I'm going to get this. Romans chapter 5, starting in verses 12 through 14. This is the main proof text that uh, that is, is used. 12.14 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin... And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him who was to come. Okay, so that first part's really important. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world and... So a lot of people will think, well, death entered the world at the fall. Well, no, sin entered the world and death by sin and deaths passed upon all men. Why just men? Because for that all have sinned. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about how Christ is destroying him who had power over death. And the context clearly is referring to Satan. Satan has power over death only in one sense, that he has power over sin. What happened in the garden was we gave the sin the legal right into uh, this situation. So, And because sin leads to death, that's in, the, in that sense Satan has power over death. So again, let's read this again. Wherefore, by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so so death passed upon all men for all that have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. So it would seem here that this this verse is nothing to do with animals. This is a man-centered thing. Death by sin, and then it clarifies, well, let me read it again. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passes upon all men, for that all have sinned. And, of course, it would be speaking of men there, which is very man-centered. It's almost excluding the possibility. It's saying that death passes from all men because all have sinned. So, that verse is not... A proof text, but what's usually done is it's usually paired up with Romans 8. It's actually funny that I'm going through this and trying to read it in the King James, like, like I was saying, and I think maybe this was one of the areas of confusion for so long, is because the King James uses the word creature here instead of creation. Um, it's not a big deal. I'm not going to appeal to you on that. This is not the reason why I think this is not talking about uh, this is talking about creation. We're going to talk a completely separate thing. I'm just now realizing this, but it uses the Greek word here. Um, I can't pronounce these Greek words. Uh, Ktesis, uh, Greek word from Strong's two nine three seven. I'll just read the definition um, from original formation. Uh, so the it comes from formation, okay? So it is, it's essentially, that's its root word. Properly, the act of, by implication, the thing literally or figuratively, building, creation, creature, or ordinance. So it is the created thing. So it is the creation would be 
the more literal uh, use of this. And that's exemplified uh, by every other version, regardless if they're using the Texas Receptus or anything, when updated versions of this, they turn creature here into creation. So, it, And it's not so much that they're trying to prove anything that I'm trying to prove, it's just that's a, a better grammatical look at this. And so perhaps that's why people believe that animals are could not have died is because the King James here is using creature. But, again, we're going to find contextually that he, he must be referring to creation, and not just in this the context of this verse, but also when we see, which is the big thing here that I'm about to show you, that I don't think a lot of people know, is what Paul was quoting here. He's quoting from the Old Testament, or at least he's reckoning and calling to mind something in the Old Testament. Uh, but anyway, let's let's read it. Romans 8, 19-21. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. So, right there, we've got an interesting thing. Um, well, first, let me back up to 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Okay, so... so that the present sufferings, the trials and tribulations are not worthy to be compared because they have a great hope, which is the resurrection, the inheritance, everything that's going to happen at the resurrection or the rapture, whichever way you look at it. Same thing. Romans 8.19, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Okay, so again, he's, he's talking about the, the resurrection here, and he's saying that the creation or creature, where I'm not going to, I'm not going to belabor that point here, is waiting for the resurrection. Something about the resurrection is what is going to deliver them from whatever happened at the curse. And that's an interesting point, especially depending on when you think the resurrection is going to happen. Um, because, you know, either pre-trib or pre-wrath or any any pre-mill, uh, you know, type situation, you've got a problem there because the earth is going to be delivered from this bondage at the resurrection. From my perspective in the pre-wrath, that, that doesn't make any sense because the next day, the very same day, a third of the green grass is destroyed. Even worse for pre-tribulationalists because they've got seven years of, of tribulation to, uh, to deal with. That, that certainly, if the rapture happens before that, it, and, and what it's talking about here is supposedly the earth is going to be delivered from, um, you know, animal death and everything else at this point, that's a big problem because, you know, a third, what is it, all the living creatures in the sea die in one of the last bowls. So, you know, that's a problem. There's a contradiction there, a big one. Um, so that's an issue. Uh, but anyway, let's, let's continue to read. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willing, not willingly, but by reason of him who subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Okay, so it's saying that the creature was made subject to, quote, vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who subjected the same in hope. So it was, it was through, it was God's doing, but because of Adam. So it doesn't matter if you really think it's Adam that did it or God through, because of Adam, either way, it was subject not willingly. The, the creature or creation, honestly, you can look at that the same way as far as I'm concerned. Um, I think that King James intended creature to be as creation here, but but nevertheless. Um, bec- but we're having trouble with it because of our English here, but again, it doesn't matter. Because the creature itself also should be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God, 
For we know that the whole creation, I'm going to move on here from 21, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. Okay, so the creation groans and travaileth in pain, waiting for, what does it say there? The redemption of our body. He says, and not only they, but ourselves also. So we're, we're, we are waiting for it. They're waiting for waiting for the resurrection. So, so this is a big issue. What is he talking about here? I think it's a contradiction if we say that the earth is going to be redeemed in the sense that there's going to be no more animal death or anything else, physical death, if we say that all this is going to happen at the resurrection. And the amazing thing here is in Isaiah 24, verses 4 through 6, and then we're later on we're going to look at Isaiah 26 as well. And I'm going to read from the King James here again, and uh, I'll show you something that's interesting about this again. Isaiah 24, 4, The earth mourneth and fadeth away. Okay, so already we're talking, we're, we're, this is, again, Paul who's quoting this, Paul who knows the Old Testament, you know, a student of Gamaliel, the most respected Hebrew scholar. Paul obviously knows his stuff. He would have been referring to this and referring to them and and, and trying to appeal to the Romans like, look, yeah, this is bad, but remember about the resurrection. And we're about to quote like the resurrection passage. So there's this and there's one is Hosea. But I mean, if if you were a Pharisee, which which Paul was, obviously believed in the resurrection, then you your proof text would be what we're going to be looking at right now. So these things would be on the tip of his tongue. Anyway, the earth mourneth and fadeth away. The world languishes and fadeth away. This is one of the reasons I, I validate the use of creation there instead of creation, creatures, because I, I believe what he's quoting from is clearly um, clearly exemplified here. Not a creature, but, but the creation, the world, as he says there in verse 4. The earth, and the earth in the first word. The earth mourneth and fadeth away. The world languish, languisheth and fadeth away. The haughty people of the earth do languish. The earth also defiled under the inhabitants thereof because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore has the curse devoured the earth and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men are left. Interesting first is we're going to see this later when we look at the resurrection passage that the earth is also defiled. Here it says Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew word H478, which is Takath, I don't know how to pronounce that, uh, which is here translated under. The New American Standard translates that as by. The earth is also defiled by the inhabitants. Now, I don't want you to take my word for that translation because obviously what, what I'm going to try to appeal to you here is that what is defiling the earth is this, the, the death of the people in it, in a sense, uh, and it's, it's because of the wrongness of death, the unnaturalness of death in a sense. And that's why the earth groaneth, and as we're going to see here in the, in the resurrection passages in Isaiah, and waits to give birth to the dead people are going to be resurrected. Okay? So in that, in that sense, the earth is going to be uh, redeemed at the resurrection from its dead. Now, so I'm saying that the earth, it doesn't really matter how you take that. The earth is defiled under the inhabitants because it would still essentially mean the same thing, that the earth itself is defiled by whom? By 
uh, by the inhabitants are the ones defiling the earth. So I don't want you to take that, um, um, take that concept on faith. I think that there's some pretty interesting validation for that. There's a sense in which the, 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 well, let's just read it. Numbers 35, 33 through 34 says, so ye shall not pollute the land wherein you are for blood. It defileth the land. The land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. Uh, defile not therefore the land which ye shall inhabit, wherein I dwell for I, uh, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. So the, the land is defiled by um, the blood of the slain also. You'll see this in Genesis when with uh, Cain and Abel. If you remember, the, the blood cries out from from the grave and 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 all that stuff so um, there is a sense in which the land is defiled by the sin itself you'll see a lot of verses about this where um, let's see here in, in Psalms 106 and they served their idols in which were snaring to them ye that they sac yea they sacrificed their sons and daughters unto devils and shed innocent blood even the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan and then here's the here's the issue. Um, uh, even of the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus were they defiled with their own works and went whoring after their, their own inventions. There's also a sense in which you'll you'll see that the land is defiled by not necessarily blood being spilled on it, but by sin itself. There's a few verses that that deal with that. So that's what I'm trying to say is that the Romans 8 verse talking about how creation is groaning and earnest or cre the creature creature. But I think that you can see that not only grammatically, but contextually as well as referencing Isaiah as what Paul was talking about, demonstrate that the word there is creation. Again, it's not a big point. But I think the main point is, is that what we see he's talking about there. The context is he's saying creation is waiting for the resurrection too. Because it'll be delivered from that. And, I, and this is how we're going to really, really see that when we start to look at uh, Isaiah 26, just two chapters later, later, which is like the super awesome resurrection verse that everybody would have been debating at the time. And I think this is especially interesting in light of what we just read. So Isaiah 26, 19 through 21. The dead men shall live together with my dead body. Shall they rise Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyselves, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation be overpassed. Let me clarify that. Uh, if you know the view that I hold on the resurrection, obviously the, the resurrection and the, the wrath of God begin on the same day. The rapture and the day of the Lord are back-to-back -back events. The deliverance of the righteous and the beginning of the destruction of the wicked. So that, that makes perfect sense while he's talking about that. In the second verse, Come, my people, enter into the chambers and shut the doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. Okay, that's that's just it right there. The earth shall no more cover her slain. Why? In the context of the resurrection. This is the resurrection verse. Um, I think this is just 
as clear as day that what's being discussed in Romans 8 is not that um, animal animals couldn't die uh, beforehand, but rather that the earth is in travail waiting for um, the, as it says there in the last verse, and the earth shall no more cover its slain. And that explains why the, it, it's, it's waiting in expectation for deliverance uh, from what's called, what it says, futility until the resurrection. Because if you say, well, everything's going to be fixed then, the lion's going to lay down with the lamb and everything at that point, then you've got contradictions. Speaking of the lion laying down with the lamb, that's kind of the third, the third, third thing that's often brought up. Um, the the verse talks about essentially that lions, you know, become herbivores and stuff. The the wolf will dwell with the lamb, leopard will lie down with the young goat, calf and the young lion will uh, be uh, and the fat lean together. Talks about the young will lie down, the lion will eat straw like an ox. So we're definitely talking about turning from carnivores to herbivores in this eschatological state. But that does not this does not imply that that there won't be animal death. It just is referring to the carnality of the whole thing. Nor does this imply necessarily, I'm not saying that it wasn't this way or I don't believe it was this way, this doesn't necessarily mean this is the way it was before. Um, one might be able to make a case that this is the way the animals were pre-fall, that there was no um, meat-eating, uh, you know, carnivorous stuff. But I, I don't know. I, I mean, really, it, it's, it's hard to say. I think I've heard different arguments saying different things for different reasons. But one thing that is clear, just because they're not going to be carnivorous doesn't mean there's not going to be any death. That would just be a big assumption. It would be an even bigger assumption to say that there wasn't any animal death before, even if they weren't carnivorous. And before you know, you guys send me a bunch of hate mail about this, realize we're on the same team. I'm, I'm a young earth creationist. I just, I'm a hyper-literalist. Uh, I don't know, maybe hyper, different definitions of that. But what I'm suggesting here is that I'm not trying to skew the text or, or anything here. I'm just, if you take into account that time is perceived differently based on the speed of the universe expanding and gravity and et cetera, then you have calculations you've got to, you've got to put into this model. Um, so, yeah, six days, uh, the earth was made. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm totally about it. Six literal revolutions of the earth. Uh, it's just that time and was different from each one of those things. If you take day one, day two, day three, day four, and you look at them, what was supposed to happen, you're looking at a perfect model of what we know happened in the Earth's development. And there is no evolution in that. There is no room for evolution. There's no room for anything changing, phylum, species, anything. Even, really, it's sort of, even adapting to the environment is, is really minimal. Uh, although, obviously, creatures adapt to their surroundings, but that's that's just common sense. So, anyway, we're on the same team. Try not to send me too much hate mail about all this stuff. And I know I'm running out of time here, but I wanted to try to quickly do a, a study of Proverbs chapter 2. I'm going to just try to make this a real quick verse-by-verse study of the first six verses of Proverbs chapter 2. I really like this particular proverb for a lot of different reasons, and I think it's relevant for all of us. So I'm just going to jump right in and read the first six verses first, and then we'll talk about them. My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments within thee, so that thou incline thy ear unto wisdom and apply thy heart to understanding. Yea, if thou criest after knowledge and lifteth up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasures, 
then thou shalt understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord giveth wisdom, out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. For he layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous, and he is a buckler to them that walk uprightly. So that's the seventh verse, but we'll hit the first six verses there. Um, the reason why I want to do this is I think a lot of us want to know the will of God for our lives. And we were asking, you know, Lord, to show us a sign, to lead us to what type of thing you want us to do. Lord, just tell me where where it is. I think this is the answer to that question. I think this is how you find out. Um, there's so many blessings associated with seeking the Lord. And what I want to show you here is that seeking the Lord is more than just reading the Bible and praying. It is a, it is a state of mind. It is not, and that's what we're going to talk about here. We're going to talk about the, the seeking the Lord state of mind. And as this will come up, you know, how do we get that state of mind? Uh, is it just something that we just sort of muster up on our own, or is it a gift of God? And so we're going to look at some of that stuff. This is a um, quote here from Ironside about this. He says, These verses do not suggest a careless reading or cursory examination of the scriptures. The soul is exhorted to receive these words. The sayings of God must be received into the heart when they are uh, where they are to be stored. The ear must be inclined to wisdom. The heart applied to understanding. The mouth crying after knowledge and the voice lifted up uh, for spiritual intelligence. The whole being is thus devoted to the search for truth. The earnest seeker must dig into the word of God as a man searching for silver or hidden treasure. He will not be content with surface findings. When God's words are valued more than our necessary food, the result is certain. Quote, then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. He continues, diligent Bible studies on the decline even among those who value precious truth. Reading books about the Bible is very different from searching the word for oneself. Note, uh, uh, notes and expositions may be helpful, but these works of uninspired men must not be permitted to take the place of the sure word of God. Such one-sided study will cause men to draw their thoughts from one another instead of from God. This will result in dry intellect dry intellectuality rather than fresh, vigorous spirituality. So Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1, My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments within thee. So he starts off, my son. This is all taking the shape, as a lot of Proverbs is, uh, a sort of advice of a father to his son. And that this proverb really goes on to talk about very specific things like, um, this is this stuff will keep you from sin. I did a, a video recently about how some of the promises of the Bible that if you stay in the Word, it is protection from uh, uh, sin. So let's just sort of see. We're going to see all these different verbs here. If thou will receive my words and hide my commandments. They're kind of different ideas. You can receive my words, and that has the connotation of more than just... Um, just reading them or accepting them. There is more of a heart-level thing there. But certainly that last part, and hide my commandments within thee. Now, the Bible is the best interpreter of itself, so to try to find out what exactly hiding his commandments within uh, you looks like, let's read some other similar verses, and we'll see if we can get an idea of what, what that might mean. Proverbs 3, verse 1, just one chapter later, it says, My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep thine commandments. It just rain, started raining over here, so you may hear that in the background. 
Proverbs 4, 20, verse 22. My son, attend to my words, incline thy ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from thine eyes, keep them in the midst of thine heart, for they are life unto those that find them in health to all their flesh. Proverbs 6, uh, 21. Bind them continually upon thy heart, tie them around thy neck. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9. And these words I have commanded thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by thy way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine head, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. Job 23.12 Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Finally, um, well, let's read some from the New Testament here. Uh, again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to treasure hidden in a field, which when a man is found, he hideth for joy thereof, and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. We'll look at that in a minute. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's some more. we got Luke 2, 51, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subjected to them, but his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. So, Bind them in their in your heart, his commandments in your heart. And that's not just talking about the Ten Commandments. I mean, there's commandments all over the Bible. Uh, Jesus' commandments, love thy God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love one another as yourself. There Jesus Jesus' commandments when you when you look at him and he says, Keep my commandments, look into what he commanded. Look at the things that he did and, and meditate on them. You know, um, the the uh, Psalms, the first two Psalms talk about meditating on the word day and night, Psalm chapter 2. And I always think about that. I heard David Guzik talking about that, sort of chewing on it. Read the Bible to understand it. And you may want to think about it. Just sit there and think about it. it certainly there's, there's a lot to think about in just one parable or uh, just a few lines of text. Um, so first, this one has to do about his words. Uh, receive the words, hide the commandments within thee. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 2, So that thou incline thy ear unto wisdom, and apply thy heart to understanding. Okay, so this has two things here again. We're inclining thy ear, so we're hearing this time unto wisdom, and applying thy heart to understanding. I, I find it hard with the applying part, the applying thy heart to understanding, that that is something I, I'm going to need more instruction about how to do, how to apply my heart to understanding. What does that look like? Again, the Bible interprets itself. Let's look at a few verses about that. Bow thine ear uh, and hear the words of the wise and apply thy heart to my knowledge. For it is a pleasant thing if, if thou keep them within thee. They shall be withal fitted in thy lips that thou may trust, uh, that, thou, that thy trust may be in the Lord I have made known to thee this day, even to thee. I have not written to thee excellent things in the counsels of knowledge, that I might make thee known with the certainty of the words and truth, that thou mayest answer the words of truth to them that send it to thee. Proverbs 23.12 Applying thy heart to instruction and thine ears to the words of knowledge. So again, this, this two verses there in Proverbs talking about ears and heart. Proverbs excuse me, Psalm 90.12, So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. So somehow being taught to number our days that we are, um, as the Lord said, you know, we're just a, a, a vapor. We're here today and gone the next. We're like the flower of the field. Teaching us to number our days will help us apply our hearts to wisdom. I kind of look at that as 
you know, knowing that it's true. This is the word of God. This is what is, is important. Sometimes it's like a reality check that, that this is the most important thing that we could do. This is the most fruitful way to spend our time is to be studying the word of God. And I think that inclining thy ear unto wisdom has the connotation here of, of learning the other one was talking more about the word of God. Now, obviously, from the Lord's mouth comes, uh, uh, the Lord gives wisdom out of his mouth, comes knowledge and understanding. But I would like to suggest in this idea of inclining thy ear into wisdom that they f- that you do find good teachers, whether they be at church or online, and, and especially that of solid doctrine that, that goes verse by verse of the word, or at least is is committed to going through all of the word, the whole counsel of God, and explaining it, um, that's what you should incline your ear to and, and apply your heart to understanding. In that context, I look at it as, you know, try. If you're if you're new in the faith and, and you feel like this is just too hard for you to do, I mean, there's so much to know, and I'll never learn all that stuff. Well, I didn't know anything either. I mean, all all that the one thing I had at the beginning was applying my heart to understanding. I was downloading a lot of um, teaching and listening to it. At the time, it was real exciting teaching. You know, people like Chuck Missler and David Guzik and stuff doing verse by verse study. That was entertaining. You know, I didn't even think that I was learning, but over time, that that simple applying my heart to understanding really really bore fruit in terms of just understanding the Bible in lots of different ways. So it's not that it hasn't really even been that long in my life. It doesn't really take that long to to understand. Um, Proverbs 2, verse 3 says, Yea, if thou criest after knowledge, and lifteth up thy voice for understanding. So now we're talking about a completely different thing, about prayer. Um, if you, if, notice all these if-then statements, first three verses so far have been, if you read the Bible, if you apply your heart to understanding, if now you you cry after knowledge, and lifted up thy voice for understanding. So prayer. I'll tell you something real real interesting, I think, um, is that before I was saved, I had a knowledge of, of God. I, I believed in him to a certain extent. I was later on sort of disillusioned by the New Age. But the interesting thing was that I would pray this short prayer here uh, about knowledge and understanding. I would always cry out, essentially, for knowledge and understanding, as it says here, and I think the reason I prayed that prayer so consistently, the only reason that I can think of is because the study Bible that I owned that my sister had given me had really prominent on the front of it this verse from Proverbs 2, verse 6, that, that says, For the Lord giveth wisdom, out of his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So I think that maybe I knew that I didn't know something, and so I was. I, I would lift up my voice for knowledge and understanding. Okay, moving on to the next verse, verse 4, it says, If thou seek, seekest her as silver, and searchest for her as for hid treasures. This is the component that I think that most of us miss. And I think the Lord gives us a really good description of that in Matthew 13, 44-46, when he says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, that which when a man hath found, he hideth. And for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath and buyeth the field. And then he says it another way. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking godly pearls, who when he has found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Um, A lot of people forget that um, 
that the Lord has this whole section about counting the cost. He, you know, he talks about nobody builds a tower and and you know doesn't have enough materials to to finish it. But in the context there, he's talking about counting the cost of following him and preparing to forsake everything else except for him. That that's the kind of level of seeking that that we're talking about here. And I think that it's like this idea of a treasure hidden in a field. You know, a guy's walking around, he finds, you know, foot stumbles on this treasure. It's amazing. It's worth everything. It's worth more than anything could ever be worth. And he, and he goes and sells everything that he has to buy the field that he's in. He, bar- he reburies it. He doesn't want to just steal the treasure. He reburies it and he's going to go buy the field. Um, maybe the field's for sale? I'm not sure. Um, but but he, it's also like the pearl of great price. You know, a merchant finding this pearl that's just worth more than any anything else and he sells everything that he has to get this pearl. That's kind of our attitude towards seeking her as silver, searching for her as for hid treasures and counting the cost. What it, that's what it's like to follow Christ. To I guess I kind of look at it like this. I look at this as being real. You know, that that's a conclusion that you might not come to right at the beginning of your uh, your quest to find truth especially coming from the New Age or the occult or whatever. We've been told that the Bible's not the Word of God. It's been corrupted and all these different things. It took me years of searching out those claims to validate the Bible for my own self and to really trust it and to trust it completely. Now I totally rest in the trust of the Bible being the Word of God. And because of that understanding, if you're there already, then this applies to you. Then then what do you do with that? Well, if it's really the Word of God then there's no reason not to be diligently searching out the truth therein. I mean, if it's really the Word of God, be expect to be stumped, too. You know, when you're reading, you know, uh, the book of Matthew or something, and the Lord says something that throws you off, well, expect it. If he's really God, you're not going to <laughs> get everything right at first. In fact, I think that the Lord specifically does that. So he wants you to go check it out. What's he talking about in the Old Testament? Go figure out why I said uh, that John the Baptist was, you know, there's no one greater than him, but he's the least, he wouldn't be in the kingdom of heaven. Or go figure these odd verses that are thrown in there. Go figure out what he's talking about, and you're going to find discovery after discovery. There's no way to take it all in in one lifetime. And I think that just seeing some of the things that we talked about today with Isaiah, um, that's something that's pretty amazing. It was there the whole time. Um, but but anyway, moving on to verse 5. Uh, then thou shalt understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Now we get to the then statements. If you receive his words, hide the commandments within thee. If thou incline the ear to wisdom, apply the heart to understanding. If thou criest after knowledge and lifted up thy voice for understanding. If thou seekest for a silver and searchest for his hid treasures, then. Then. This is what we get. We get the next two verses. This one and the next one. This one says, Then thou shalt understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Well, that's not a good thing, Chris. Then thou shalt understand the fear of the Lord. Well, uh, let's let's... Let's first understand there's a little bit difference there in what the concept of fear of the Lord is. Uh, we, we read also in the Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What, what, what do you think that that could mean? 
I'm going to quote here from uh, something in the Apocrypha. This is the book of uh, Ecclesiasticus. Now, don't don't jump down my throat for quoting the Apocrypha here. Just think of this as as second uh, century BC commentary on the Old Testament. This is what it says: The fear of the Lord brings honor and pride, cheerfulness and gar and a garland of joy. The fear of the Lord gladdens the heart. It bright it brings cheerfulness and joy and long life. Whoever fears the Lord will be prosperous at the last. Blessings will be on his day uh, of his death. The essence of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Those who fear the Lord have their fill of wisdom. She gives them deep drafts of her wine. She stocks her home with all that the heart can desire of her storehouses will produce. Wisdom's garland is the fear of the Lord, flowering with peace and health. She showers down knowledge and ability and bestows high honor on those who hold fast to her. Wisdom is rooted in the fear of the Lord and long life grows on her branches. And this is a, a biblical concept. I'm going to read now from Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is be, the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of holy understanding. Job says, And unto man he said, Behold the fear of the Lord that is wisdom, and to, and to depart from evil is understanding. Jeremiah 32.43-41 And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and I will not turn away from them uh, to do good uh, to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts, and they shall not depart from me. Yea, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. So, the first then statements is, Thou shalt understand the fear, fear of the Lord, and what's the other part? And find the knowledge of God. Now, this is what a lot of us are, are seeking. We're looking for the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is in the Bible. It's like this amazing matrix of of interconnected things that have answers for yes, your specific problem. They know whether you're not supposed to, you're supposed to take that job. They know the, all those questions that you're waiting for the lightning bolt in the sky from. It's in the Bible somewhere. The Holy Spirit will show you where it is. Seek it as if the knowledge of God is is in the Bible. The answers are there not just to those type of questions, but to every type of question. Um, and uh, the last verse here for for the knowledge for the Lord gives wisdom, and out of His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So seeking understanding, seeking wisdom, whether it be wisdom about your personal life or wisdom about the things of uh, of the world uh, in terms of creation, seeking understanding that is something that uh, comes from the word comes from the mouth of the Lord. It says, God has wisdom to bestow. The Lord not only is wise himself, but he gives wisdom. And that is more than the wisest men in the world can do. For it is God's prerogative to open understanding. Um, all the wisdom that is in any creature is his gift and his free gift. And he gives it liberally, James 1.5. Has given it to many and is still giving it to them. Therefore, let us apply it. And I'm going to read from a, uh, a section that I heard Francis Chan preach on recently, and I'm going to close with this. He says in Ephesians 1, 15-18, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love unto all saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of his glory, uh, riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. 
So he's talking about these people who are already believers. He's wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love unto all saints. So he he's heard uh, of these people in Ephesus and their and their great love for the Lord, and and he ceases then not to give thanks for that, making mention of them in their prayers. For what to what end? What is he praying about? That the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of, an, of the inheritance of the saints. So he's he's uh, he's lifting up these people in intercession to pray that God would give them the knowledge of himself. And that is, that is what essentially we can seek and find in the Bible. The personality of God is in the Bible. Um, the personality of God, you start to def- to find this great defender of the, of the weak. Um, in the Old Testament, I know people say, well, God of the Old Testament is all about uh, wars and stuff. I don't know. If you read that in context, whenever you hear about God judging some- somebody, you're like, yeah, get him. All right, finally, somebody's dealing with these people for killing all those kids. Uh, or, and obviously when you see... Um, when you see the Lord Himself in 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 the form of Christ, He is the very image of God, the expressed image of God. When we were looking at Him, we're looking at the personality of God. Study Him, study Him as if He was uh, the very apex of everything that ever was or ever will be. That He is the the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That everything was created for him and by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. We're talking about the man, Jesus Christ. Study him. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, study him. Uh, 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 I can't remember the order of the rest of the books of the Bible, but the whole New Testament is a great place to start for that. I always recommend people starting the New Testament. Um, I also recommend things like the Proverbs and the Psalms. Proverbs, there's 31 chapters in Proverbs. You can read one chapter for every day of the week. It's the seventh today. You can read Proverbs chapter seven. Um, and you can start in a book of the Bible, whether it be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Romans, or Acts, Romans. I don't know. I can't remember them all. Um, and just start going through a book of the Bible. Go, go through it. Find good teaching on that particular book. Um, if you want to also, I've got uh, that um, disc, Christianity 101, that talks about Studying the Bible it gives you programs like I'm using here, eSword. It talks about hermeneutics and, and different Bible study methods. It gives you commentators and it gives you a lot of other teaching from people like uh, David Guzik and and all these other people. So, so consider getting that if you haven't already. Just it's, it's totally free. Just go to my website, click the banner, and just put your address in, and I'll send you one out. Uh, I've been sending them out um, all over the world, and it's been a great, great thing. Um, so again, recapping here on the day's events, the DVD project, talked a little bit about that, talked about the King James Bible, talked about the cup. Go to the show notes, check out the 17-minute edit of Joe Fost's The Cup. Um, disaster Relief, talked about that, nothing really to do there. Talked about Pollyannity, Seventh-day Adventism movie and materials. Go to the show notes, check out that, particularly the doc- documentary, The Spirit uh, behind Ad- Adventism, I think it's called. Um, we talked about Gerald Schroeder and the the theory there. Alan Watt, people out there that are that can do Alan Watt debunking. 
If that's you or you want to get involved in that project or you think that you can help in some way, let me know. Just email me, nowhere to run 1984 at gmail.com. And outsourcing in general, anybody that wants to get started researching perhaps the Muslim tract or maybe somebody um, uh, that wants to help with the Seventh-day Adventist thing or we've got the Mormon thing, some other ones are out there that we need to work on. So, Also, I wanted to throw out a prayer request. If everybody would do this, I would really appreciate it. Just praying for a guy named Ray's Salvation. Something real special is going on there, and I think it's real important that everybody, if you just take a few seconds here, maybe while the music's going or right at the end of this, just pray for Ray and pray for his salvation. Thanks for listening to Nowhere to Run. You can download all of the archives to this show and others I've done for free at NowhereToRunRadio.com. Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. You can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. Go to Nowhere to Run Radio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time.